Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Rambling Brews Podcast. I am your host, Tim. This is episode six, and I'm fired up. But right off the rip, I gotta mention this. Last week, I felt something was missing from the podcast. Something just didn't feel right. Something was off, and it took me a little bit of time, but I finally figured it out. The missing piece was an ice-cold Rocky Mountain Brewed Silver Bullet. That's right, folks. Last week, I did the entire episode with just an IPA. Can you believe it? So without further ado, let me crack a cold Coors Light. (sighs) Oh, damn. Yeah, that felt good. Now we're cooking with gas. Hey, I hope everybody had a great Super Bowl weekend. Just pumping the body full of buffalo chicken dip, beer, taco dip, more beer, chicken wings, nachos, you name it. Maybe even some more beer. And now we're living in a world where Tom Brady is a seven-time Super Bowl champion. Can you believe that? Seven-time Super Bowl champion. Unbelievable. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers just absolutely shit-pumped the Kansas City Chiefs 31-9. And Tampa Bay, they're now the city of champions. I don't think there's any denying that. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, as we just said, won Super Bowl 55. The Tampa Bay Lightning won the Stanley Cup a few months ago back in the bubble. And the Tampa Bay Rays, if it wasn't for some shoddy managing... They might have won the World Series where their manager pulled their starting pitcher, their ace. The guy was dealing in favor of some analytics over some logic. So if he wouldn't have done that, you're really looking at the uh, city with the trifecta, the the World Series, the Super Bowl, and the Stanley Cup. But at any rate, City of Champions down there, Tampa Bay, what an electric town. I'm sure it's buzzing. I'm sure they're having a blast down there. Um, Not to mention the Super Bowl was there too, so that's even crazier. Uh, But the actual game itself wasn't really ever in doubt for the Buccaneers. I mean, their defensive performance was outstanding. You got to tip your cap to the uh, the defensive unit. You got to tip your cap to Todd Bowles. Um, Mahomes was running for his life the entire night, so he dropped back to pass fifty six times, and on twenty nine of those fifty six, so fifty two percent of the time he dropped back to pass, he was pressured. He was rushed out of the pocket. He his throw was rushed. He had to scramble, and he was taking some big hits too. Those pressures, that's the most ever in Super Bowl history, 52% of the dropbacks. That's the most ever for any quarterback in Super Bowl history. On the other side, Tom Brady was only pressured four times. So what's Tom Brady do? He drops back to pass. He's got all day to throw. He can make his reads. He can find the open receiver, find the open man, make a good pass, and move down the field, and that's exactly what they did. I mean, they're loaded. They've got Mike Evans on the outside, one of the best wide receivers in the league. They've got Gronkowski in the middle. They've got Chris Godwin. They had Antonio Brown playing the slot. Antonio Brown would never be playing the slot if he wasn't desperate trying to find a job um, this past offseason. They're loaded, and they got Leonard Fournette in the backfield. So that the screen game that they have is incredible. I mean, they were virtually unstoppable. Kansas City couldn't do anything to stop them. And Rob Gronkowski, I mean, 10 months ago, this guy made his WWE debut. Only to then say, fuck it, I'm leaving, I'm going to Tampa, I'm going to join TB12 Tom Brady and we're going to win another ring, Uh, Gronkowski's fourth. It was an absolute vintage performance from Gronk, Um, two touchdowns, an absolute force on the field, nobody can cover that guy, I don't care how old he is, how hurt he is, he's a tight end, he gets matched up against linebackers, there's no chance, especially with a quarterback like Brady throwing him open sometimes, unbelievable. Uh, Antonio Brown scored a touchdown, just stabbing the knife and twisting it in Steelers fans' hearts. Um, but hey, I'm I'm happy for AB. I mean, it looked like after the game, 
he was in a good spot in his post-game press conference. He, he seems to have a better perspective on life. Maybe he's got control of his demons. So, uh, you, you know, you love to see that. Um, I hope he's a happy guy. Um, I hope he can get another contract in the NFL, maybe with the Buccaneers, and we'll see what he does. But I know it was tough to watch if you're a Steelers fan and what could have been for the Steelers. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see A.B. contribute. He had a good season, um, and then he, he contributed in the Super Bowl. And it was nice to see all his teammates kind of pumped for him. And Tom Brady posted a nice Instagram story about it. So that was pretty cool to see that. Um, and I think the game, honestly, it could have been a lot worse. Tampa Bay had the ball in the second quarter, late in the second quarter, down on the goal line. They had four straight cracks at it with goal to go. Uh, probably should have snuck it on fourth down. They could have had uh, Tom Brady kind of just jump over the line. It was fourth and goal from the one or two inch line. Um, probably could have been a, <laughs> the score could have been a lot worse, I think. Um, but they dummied them anyways. And one thing that was very noticeable and bad for the brand, uh, shout out to Pat McAfee, but bad for the brand of special team players. Uh, Tommy Townsend, the punter for Kansas City. Oh, boy. Bad night for him. Um, the first punt, I believe he was in his own end zone. He dropped the ball on the snap. But he actually, give him credit, he picked the ball up and he hit an absolute piss missile, about a 60-yard punt. But it got called back for a flag. The next punt, you could tell it was in his head. He had some Super Bowl jitters off the side of his foot. Puts Tom Brady at the 40-yard line on the plus side of the field. Um, short field, you never want to give Tom Brady a short field and all night. All Tampa Bay had was good field position. Um, that falls on special teams. That falls on the offense not being able to move the ball. And, you know, it, it was lights out from there. So um, Tom Brady wins his fifth MVP, Super Bowl MVP, that is. He's the absolute GOAT. There's no debate about it now. And he's not even done. After the game, he was saying, hey, we're going to be back. We'll be back next year. Um, I thought it was so cocky, but I loved it when he said he got up on the mic and he's talking to Jim Nance who asked him the question and Jim Nance from CBS after he won, you know, how you feel. And he was looking, he, he got in the mic and he looked in the camera and he said, I think we all knew this was going to happen. Right. Like that was the cockiest fucking thing I've ever heard, but it's so true. And Brady, I mean, what a legend, absolute boss. Um, my buddy Troy actually told me this ridiculous stat that Calvin Johnson, the Hall of Famer, we'll get into this in a minute, but he was just elected into the Hall of Fame. He came into the league. So this is, for those who don't know, this is Megatron. That was his nickname. He was an absolute beast, uncoverable. He could get the, he could beat you uh, on a deep ball. He wasn't afraid to go across the middle. Unbelievable hands. Great wide receiver, obviously. He was the first ballot Hall of Famer, but he began his career in 2007 when Brady was 30 years old, okay? So he came into the league when Brady was 30. He played an entire career, a Hall of Fame career at that, retired, waited the amount of time you have to wait after you officially retire from the NFL in order to be eligible for the Hall of Fame. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I want to say it's two years, three years maybe. Um, was inducted into the Hall of Fame, or at least selected to be inducted in this year's class. And Tom Brady was winning the Super Bowl in the same weekend. So Tom Brady is still playing. So Calvin Johnson started his career, had a Hall of Fame career, retired, waited the amount of time he had to wait to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, was inducted into the Hall of Fame, and Tom Brady's still playing. Unbelievable. You could take Tom Brady's first half of his career, so from when he entered, to, entered the league up until he was 30 years old, and then take his second half of his career from when he turned 30 on to present day, and if they were two separate guys, they'd be surefire Hall of Famers, and they'd both be in the GOAT conversation. The numbers... Uh, as far as wins and losses are about the same. The numbers as far as uh, touchdowns and interceptions are about the same. 
His first half of his career, he had three Super Bowls. His latter half of his career, he's had four Super Bowls, and he's not done. Like I mentioned, he said he's going to be coming back earlier in the week during uh, media time. He said, hey, I think our team next year is going to be even better, and that's scary for the league. But I think for the next two, three years, I mean, you gotta you got to respect the Buccaneers, and I think there's going to be a lot of guys. Like I said, Mike Evans is the top receiver on that team, one of the best receivers in the league. He came out and said, hey, I'm willing to restructure my contract if it means being able to keep some of these pieces here or maybe to attract some free agents to come play roles for this team. Um, this is a destination team. It's Tampa Bay, don't remember. I mean, it's a beautiful place. Um, unbelievable. There's no state taxes there. to save you a little bit of coin. But it's not like they're going to New England to play under Bill Belichick. I mean, they're going to play under Bruce Arians. Shout out to Bruce Arians, man. He was awesome here in Pittsburgh. So happy to see him get his Super Bowl ring. Um, he deserves it. Great staff. Byron Leftwich down there. Antoine Randall, the ex-Steeler, got a Super Bowl ring as a coach. Um, but this is Tampa Bay, man. People are going to be going down there. They're going to take pay cuts. It's going to be a lot like what you see with LeBron James in the NBA, where people are like, hey, this Brady guy, he wins every goddamn year. Why don't we just you know, go down there and accept a new role? Maybe you're later in your career. You haven't won anything. You put up good numbers. And some guys have said, hey, I've made $100 million. I don't need that much money. I'll take less. I'll play for a minimum. Whatever the case is, I think for the next couple of years, you're going to see Tampa Bay just absolutely running the show in the NFC, and they're going to be a Super Bowl favorite until Tom Brady decides to retire, and I don't see any signs of him slowing down. I think people said that when he was 37, and people said that when he was 40, and he's been saying for the last seven, eight years he wants to play till he's at least 45. That's what his trainer with TB12 and his diet and all that stuff has told him. If you keep this up, you can definitely play in your – um, at a high level until you're 45 years old, and that's what he's striving for. And I, honestly, I could see him playing past 45. So I'm I'm enjoying the um, the journey for him, and I'd love to see him go for eight, go for nine, go for ten Super Bowls. Would be absolutely incredible. Um, one negative note from the night: my parlay. If anybody took the parlay, it didn't hit, obviously, because Kansas City couldn't move the ball. They couldn't do much. Um, Tampa, obviously, they were plus three and a half. They covered that because they were they won huge. But the over was 56.5, and and with Kansas City not really being able to move the ball, that didn't hit. So I'm 0 for 1 on the parlay game here on the Rambling Brews Gambling. Um, But stick with me. I'm going to have some NHL picks, and we're going to be back. We'll bounce back. Don't worry. Um, One of my wife's favorite parts of the Super Bowls is the Super Bowl commercials. I think a lot of people really like the Super Bowl commercials. I never really got into them, uh, but in recent years, I've enjoyed them. Um, I thought this year they were pretty solid for the most part. I think they were feel-good commercials. You know, I thought they really were trying to, like, this year sucked for everybody, right? So they were really trying to make people feel good, um, enjoy themselves while they were watching the game. Um, there were a lot of A-list celebrities, which is pretty crazy. I mean, normally I feel like, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you don't normally see A-list celebrities. I mean, this year they had John Travolta, Matthew McConaughey, Paul Rudd, Drake, uh, Mila Kunis, Ashton Kutcher, and just to name a couple, I'm sure there was more than that. Um, but maybe just because there's not a lot going on, right? There's not a lot of TV shows being filmed, the music um, being made, or there's not a lot of tours going on. Uh, there's not movies being made. So it's it's possible that they were just open and, and that benefited the viewers because some of these commercials were awesome. I really enjoyed um, <laughs> the State Farm commercial where everybody had a stunt double and Jake from State Farm uh, was Drake from State Farm. I thought that was fucking hilarious. I enjoyed that. Um, that was a great commercial. Drake's got a great personality. Um, the other one, my wife really loved it, was uh, the Cheetos commercial with Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher. 
Um, Mila Kunis, absolute rocket, by the way. Um, but Shaggy was in it too. So Shaggy's the man. So um, they basically had a commercial, for those who didn't see it, off of Shaggy's monster hit, It Wasn't Me. And just to talk about Shaggy's music for a second, it's it, it stands the test of time for me. I don't think there's ever a time where Shaggy's music comes on that you can't just completely like just bounce to it and you're you're enjoying it. Nobody ever turns off Shaggy. If you turn off Shaggy, there's something wrong with you. Um, but they were doing a commercial based off of uh, Cheetos, and Mila Kunis was taking the Cheetos that they were Ashton Kutcher's, I guess, um, her husband, and he was like, "Hey, I caught you on the counter." You know, I caught you in the shower. I caught you on the sofa. All the lines from the "It Wasn't Me" song um, by Shaggy. So it was funny. It was pretty cool. Uh, pretty clever. Um, I enjoyed the commercials, and uh, they were great. And I, I haven't really seen anybody online complaining about them. So um, it was pretty interesting, and, and I enjoyed them. I wish I could say the same about the halftime show, but I expected that. So, uh, I mean, again, before I get into this, I got to take a horn of this beer. Hold up. Might need a couple for that, but okay. So the weekend, he comes out, and I'm already going in. I I admit I'm going in a little bit skeptical because, like I said on the last episode, he spent seven million dollars of his own coin. Okay, seven sheets. Like, what was he going to spend it on? Was my question. Was it going to be worth it? He comes out. First thing I hear is fake crowd noise. Massive amount of fake crowd noise. So I know there was 25,000 fans there. Is it? It's in Tampa. Florida's mostly wide open um, as far as COVID regulations and COVID restrictions. But there's no way that there was this many people there to make that noise. This noise was like when Steph Curry hits a game-winning buzzer beater in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at home and the crowd goes absolutely apeshit. So he came out. He hit one note and the crowd went wild. It was ridiculous to me. I don't even know why they did that. They could have just left the actual crowd noise from people there. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I'm just not, I'm not the biggest weekend fan, but like, what the fuck was it when he went, he got close up on the camera and he like grabbed the camera, looked like he was kind of going through that gold little maze. I can't even describe it. I've seen it all over Twitter. It's the, probably the meme of 2021 so far, probably might be for the rest of the year, <laughs> but like, what was he doing? Like, he looked like he was absolutely in one and he's just like, you know, you, you know, when you're drunk as hell and you're like. FaceTiming or you're Snapchatting your boys or you're Snapchatting your girls, whatever it is. That's what he looked like. It was incredible. It honestly looked like whenever uh, my dad or somebody calls me and says, hey, my TV's messed up or my internet's out and he's trying to FaceTime me because you know how parents are. They don't look at the camera at all. They're And that's exactly what it reminded me of. It was incredible. Um, I have no idea what this performance was supposed to be, if I was like what I was supposed to think during it, what he spent the $7 million on. I mean, next thing I know, he's got people out there with face bandages on. I guess that's a weekend thing. I'm not sure. I, I haven't, I, I don't follow the weekend that much to know. Um, but I mean, I guess those must have been expensive for $7 million because I didn't see really anything in here, maybe outside the fireworks, which were exceptional. But honestly, to me, fireworks, like once you've seen one, you've seen them all. I mean, I don't understand how they could be any better. Like why you would spend so much money and not just let Pepsi spend the money. Why you had to put your foot down and say, I'm putting my own money up, I want it my way, when it was no different than just a regular halftime show performance. I don't understand whatever happened to going out there and performing. Why do you have to go out there and make an ass out of yourself and do ridiculous, stupid stuff that nobody cares about? I haven't seen one person. And if anybody feels different, I'm, hey, reach out to me at Rambling Brews or however you can. 
I haven't seen one person out there that thought this uh, halftime show was good. Not one person. And I'm not trying to knock The weekend because he's got some bangers. He's got some good music. But I don't think he has the catalog for the Super Bowl. I mean, some of the music he was playing, I just didn't understand how it would even remotely relate to the Super Bowl or how it would be you know, a good performance for the Super Bowl crowd um, and millions of people watching at home. Um, I was, the whole time, I was just praying that Drake would come out and save this performance, maybe play The Ride or maybe play Crew Love or something like that, where Drake, because Drake and Weekend have had uh, plenty of songs um, when The Weekend was first coming out that are great. I was just hoping for that to happen. I mean, I saw people online that were comparing and saying The Weekend is the Michael Jackson of this generation. Are you? I mean, I don't even I don't even have words for that. The Weekend is the Michael Jackson of this generation. Now, granted, I'm not even the biggest Michael Jackson fan. Um, outside of the the way you make me feel, the song that my wife and I that was our wedding song. I love that song. But other than that, I'm not really even the biggest Michael Jackson fan. But I know Michael Jackson's greatness. I recognize how innovative he was, how ahead of his time he was, how entertaining he was. This ain't that. It ain't even close. So that guy needs his head examined. But hey, everybody likes what they like. You know, the whole time I, I was thinking too, while I was thinking I wish Drake would come out, I was also thinking that last week whenever I was talking about how halftime shows are mainly horrible for the most part, I was trying to think, hey, Tim, do you think there are any that you liked? So I was thinking back, and I could only come up with two. Now, granted, I want to give a disclaimer. One of these was not the Super Bowl halftime show. It was the Thanksgiving Day um, Dallas Cowboys game halftime show. But I figured that could count in this conversation because it is a game that's on Thanksgiving Day that's watched by millions of people. And it was Creed. Now, I don't want any hate from people that don't like Creed. I'm not here for any of that. If you don't like Creed, there's something wrong with you. I'm not saying you got to listen to Creed every day, but their songs slap. I don't care what anybody says. I enjoy them all. Um, but you can't you can't possibly tell me the 2006 performance in Dallas for Thanksgiving Day when they performed, Can You Take Me Higher? When they performed Higher, when they had the dudes on the cables with the white sheets and they're flying around like angels, that was absolutely electric. That is what a halftime show should be. I'll tweet that out from the Rambling Brews podcast, but if you haven't seen it, go to YouTube and type in the Creed 2006 Thanksgiving Day halftime performance and you'll be blown away. It's unbelievable. I've seen it pop up on the internet in the last couple weeks. Um, as people were talking about the halftime show coming up, it's one of the best halftime shows at, at, at any sporting event. And hey, I'm here for that. I enjoyed the hell out of that. I loved it. I actually went back and watched it today again. It's great. So if you haven't seen it, go watch that. I'm telling you. And in 1999, the other uh, Super Bowl halftime show that I can think of was absolutely electric. Was in 1999, the WWF used to have what was called halftime heat. So you could go switch over to the WWF channel, whether it was TNN or USA Network or TNT, whatever the hell it was in 1999. And you'd be able to see a wrestling match. And in 1999, it had Mankind versus The Rock for the WWF title in an empty arena, no-holds-barred match. Absolutely one of the best matches of the era. And a great innovative idea by uh, idea by WWF to have people switch over when it was... I don't even know who the... Uh, somebody can tweet me or text me or tell me who it was. But who the actual Super Bowl halftime musical performance was in 1999... But I remember just switching over and watching the Rock dummy uh, Mick Foley hit him in the head with like 10 steel chair shots. It was incredible. So those are the only two I can think of. 
um, an honorable mention was when I was younger and I got to see Janet Jackson's boob on TV. Uh, obviously, I think that's one of everybody's most memorable halftime performances. Um, but again, this weekend performance was terrible. I still, I would love to see a cost breakdown of what he spent his $7 million on. And if anybody can tell me how they think it was good or how they think it was worth it, like I said, I don't want to knock the weekend. I like some of his music. It's nothing personal with him. It's just why he felt the need to put $7 million of his own money up for that. Like, was it the backdrop? Was it like him performing in the stands? Um, was it all the guys that were on the field when the red jackets with the uh, face bandage on their face? Like all of that, was it necessary to put up seven milli of your own coin? I don't understand that at all. Um, so I'd love somebody to try to explain that to me. And the last thing I want to say about the Super Bowl was the trophy presentation really bothered me a little bit. Um, I know this happens every year, but why is it that whenever a team wins the Super Bowl, I couldn't remember if it's Roger Goodell that comes out or whoever presents it to the team. Why does the owner get the Vince Lombardi trophy first? I don't get that. Like, why wouldn't, like, why, why would the owner get it first? Why wouldn't the players, the coaches, the, I, I know nothing is possible in this league and these teams and they wouldn't be getting paid and they wouldn't have a league if it wasn't for the owners cutting checks. But, at the end of the day, the coaches put in the time, the players put in the time, the players go out there and execute the game plan, they make the plays. Um, why wouldn't they just give the trophy to the players first? That's the one thing I think is exceptional about the National Hockey League. Not only is the Stanley Cup the best trophy in sports, it's not even close, there's not even a comparable trophy. It's it's so historic and unbelievable to see in person. You know, In and of itself, it's an unbelievable trophy. But the presentation... The Stanley Cup guy, the guy that carries the cup and maintains the cup, he brings it out with the white gloves, makes sure it's all shined up and there's no fingerprints on it. They put it on the table. The commissioner, Gary Bettman, comes out. He calls over the captain of the team that's won the Stanley Cup. He calls over the captain. The captain comes over. They shake hands. They take a picture. They get a little quick photo op. And then what does he do? He picks the Stanley Cup up. He gets to kiss it. He gets to skate around with it. Um, and and it basically, he, he makes the choice the captain makes the choice who gets it next. Um, a lot of times, it's a very emotional moment. You can go back and you can look at, not to plug YouTube too much on this podcast, but I'll tweet this one out from Rambling Brews, at Rambling Brews on Twitter as well. But when the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup in 2001, when Joe Sackick picked up the Stanley Cup and he didn't even pick it up and raise it above his head and kiss it or anything, he turned around and handed it to Ray Bork, who had been in the league for 20 years and been exceptional one of the best defensemen of all time played in Boston um he, he the Stanley Cup eluded him his entire career he finally won it and he handed it to him it's one of the most emotional moments in NHL history um and then on the other side of that look at like a couple years ago in 2018 Alexander Ovechkin how bad he wanted to win the Stanley Cup the narrative for him every year was you can't win you can't win yeah you score a lot but you can't win your teams never win blah 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 you could tell the raw emotion that guy had on his face even as a hardened Pittsburgh Penguins fan, I felt good. I felt happy for him. The, the, you know, it was emotional watching him just completely, just the raw emotion of him screaming and so excited that he won the Stanley Cup. And that's what I think the NFL would be missing here because some of these guys haven't won. Or you want to see these reactions, but you're giving it to the owner first. You're giving it to the suit first. I, I just don't understand that. It's not my thing. Um, I, I think it's an atrocity that they, that they do that. And 
you know, I think they need to take a page out of hockey's book uh, as far as the celebrations go. And speaking of hockey, let's dive into a little bit of NHL. So the Pittsburgh Penguins, as we mentioned last week, I had a whole episode where it was dedicated to Jim Rutherford, his legacy, um, and how he's viewed here in Pittsburgh and his impact on the organization and how the Penguins were going to have to take steps forward to hire a new GM. Well, they did that. Uh, This past Tuesday, they brought in Ron Hextall. He was named the general manager. He signed a four-year contract in Pittsburgh with an uh, option for a fifth year. Um, This year currently, so he's coming in in the middle of the season. This will count as year one of the contract. So that's pretty crazy to me. So people that don't know, Ron Hextall is a Philadelphia Flyers legend. Um, The Pittsburgh Penguins and Philadelphia Flyers are bitter rivals, can't stand each other. Organizations hate each other. Um, So that's pretty remarkable that you would have a Philadelphia Flyers legend come in to be the general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, Ron Hextall actually was an assistant general manager in Los Angeles um, in the early part of the last decade. So in the 2012 and 2014, he was instrumental in their Stanley Cups and uh, their little mini dynasty they had there with a lot of their draft picks. And he was very influential on that process. Um, he then took a job in Philadelphia as the uh, general manager in 2014 uh, through 2018. He didn't have a lot of on-ice success in terms of the NHL club. I mean, they won a couple playoff series, but he did absolute wonders in restocking their talent pool, their prospects. He was super patient. He did very well in the drafts. Um, but he was ultimately fired because in true Philadelphia fashion, they felt like he was too patient. They wanted to make the big deal. They wanted to make the big trade. They wanted to make the big free agent acquisition. And in their defense, at that time when Ron Hextall was in Philadelphia, they're looking at their cross-state rivals. The Pittsburgh Penguins win back-to-back Stanley Cups. They're looking at their other huge rival, the Washington Capitals, win a Stanley Cup in 2018. So they could feel the pressure. And they knew they had all these draft picks and they had all these players that were in the pipeline and coming up. But um, for some reason, Philadelphia just wasn't very uh, patient. They grew tired of his patience. And and they just they wanted him to be aggressive and um, I think the Flyers have really always had that problem. They've always been trying to get the big free agent or make a uh, an offer sheet on a, a big restricted free agent or make a big trade, and it hasn't really worked out for them. Um, so I, I'm pretty excited to see what Ron Hextall brings to the table. It's still incredible to me. Like uh, I read today that they consulted Brian Burke, so I'll get to this in a minute. But Brian Burke is one of the biggest, um, you know, biggest names in hockey. He's been around for 30 years. He's been a general manager. He's worked in the hockey operations of the NHL itself. Um, He's been a president of hockey operations. Um, He's won a Stanley Cup with the Anaheim Ducks. He's been around for a long time. He's been an analyst. Uh, The Penguins actually reached out to him and consulted with him um, on how they should approach this general manager search. Um, They worked with him. And then after, whenever they settled on Ron Hextall, Uh, Mario Lemieux, the big guy, 66, basically told David Morehouse, who's the president of the Pittsburgh Penguins, to say, hey, let's find a role for Ron or let's find a role for Brian Burke. So uh, Brian Burke actually also was hired as the president of hockey operations for the Pittsburgh Penguins. He he brings outstanding experience, as I just mentioned. Um, He's one of my personal favorites in the league in terms of he's always a great soundbite. He tells you how it is. Um, he has no problem giving his opinion. He, he's very opinionated, um, but he has the tendency to be a little bit of a dinosaur. And what I mean by that is he always wants to revert back to how it was in the 80s, the, the early 90s, where you've got big guys, you've got bruisers, you've got goons, you've got um, 
players that aren't necessarily the best hockey players, but they add a little bit of grit and toughness. So it'll be interesting to see how it works with the Penguins um, because the Penguins are in win-now mode, and I'm not sure the fans and the organization and the league, you know, it, it's worth going out and getting a bunch of big guys and a bunch of slow guys that are going to be hard to play against, uh, but but sacrificing your speed because, like I said on the last episode, this league is speed, speed, speed. So it'll be interesting to see, interesting to see how it plays out because – I don't know if if Brian Burke's going to interfere with Ron Hextall um, or if Ron Hextall has the authority to do what he wants to do. Um, It was very interesting this week in the press conference where they were introduced on Zoom that Ron Hextall, the new GM, did not uh, did not say that they were going to I guess he did not commit that they were going to keep. You know, Crosby, Latang, Malkin, as I mentioned on the last episode, there's going to be some big decisions to make, but th- he did not commit to keeping them past this year. Um, now, I did hear that Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin and, and their agents and their camp gave the blessing to the Penguins that they were okay with this signing, not that it really matters. I mean, it's an organizational decision. It's all about the logo, but they did consult those two guys. Um, I think those two guys, as I've said many times, will retire Penguins. They're franchise lifers, but I think this year, is a big year for the Penguins. I think they really need to perform. If they can get into the playoffs and win one playoff series, I think at a minimum, then I think a lot of jobs will be saved and they'll be able to kind of retool a little bit. But if they flame out, they don't make the playoffs, I think this does not bode well for Mike Sullivan, the coach. Um, it's it's never good for a head coach in the National Hockey League or really any sport that your general manager, the general manager that hired you, that believed in you, gets canned or, in this case, steps down, and they bring a whole new general manager in. They bring a new assistant general manager in. They bring a new director of hockey operations in. At some point, these guys are going to say, hey, we need to bring our own guy in. They're going to do interviews and and make sure they have the same philosophy. So I think this might not um, bode well for Mike Sullivan uh, the Penguins head coach. And and that's just the way the Penguins are. I mean, that's the way hockey is, but especially the Pittsburgh Penguins, anybody that's followed them over the last, you know, decade to 15 years, the superstar players on this team, Crosby, Malkin, uh, Latang, Flurry, Kessel, those guys over the years, they tend to tune out the head coach. So they've had success, but it just always seems to happen. It always seems to happen where the players just tune out the head coach. They grow tired of them. Um, they grow tired of his philosophies, and I'm not saying that's what's happening now, but it's very possible that that could happen here soon. And uh, you know, if things don't go well this year, I think there's going to be some big organizational changes. I mean, I, I'm I'm really pleased as a Penguins fan with the Ron, uh, the Ron Hextall hiring. I'm not exactly sure that it it was the best move. I think the Penguins are really trying to win now, um, obviously, but. I'm not sure it was the best move. They they maybe could have just maybe sat back, um, not to consider this year as a wash, but maybe just play with what you've got, maybe make a couple minimal deals. I mean, if you're like second place in your division heading into the playoffs and you have a chance to make a big acquisition and you think you can uh, you can get that acquisition without giving up too much and it'll really impact your team and make you go on a run to the Stanley Cup final, yeah, I think it's worth it. But I think, honestly, maybe the Penguins, um, if it were me, Maybe I would have waited a little bit. I think Hextall is the best they could get now, but they maybe could have waited to see how this year played out, how COVID's impact um, influences next year. Maybe some general managers that get uh, fired or their staffs get fired after this season, um, something like that. It might be a little bit easier to hire in the offseason, but, hey, I'm all on board with the Penguins. I trust 66, uh, Mario Lemieux. I trust David Morehouse, um, the organization. They've always done well to, to compete and to 
to win in the last 15 years, 20 years, and really over the course of the franchise for the most part, um, for the better part of my life, um, the last 30 years. So I trust them. Um, I just wonder, like, and maybe if they did wait, like I said, if they did wait to the offseason, is the Penguins' job really that, like, say they waited till the after this season and the Penguins missed the playoffs this year, is the Penguins' job really you know, a Cadillac level job to use a Brian Burke term. Is it, is it one of the best jobs in the league anymore? I'm not sure it is. I mean, they've got bare cupboards as far as their draft prospects. I mean, as far as their prospects that they've already drafted Um, after this season, they get all their, they have all their draft picks. They haven't traded any after this season um, going forward, but you've got aging superstars and you don't have very much coming in and you have uh, ownership and management that are expecting you to compete and win and compete for Stanley cups. Definitely right now. Um, so I'm not sure it's the it's the best job, but I think Ron Hextall uh, will do will do a great job. He brings a lot of experience. He's known as a draft uh, builder. He's known as a guy that's able to put a decent product out on the ice. I think he'll have a little bit of help from Brian Burke and from ownership here, and a little bit of push from them to maybe put a better product out on the ice. But his his specialty um, is definitely building up through the draft and building up the prospects. So. Um, the one thing, like I mentioned, where he, he didn't commit to Malkin or Crosby or Latang after this season, there's absolutely no chance Sidney Crosby leaves. There's guaranteed no chance. I don't think there's any chance Malkin leaves either. But I think after this season, there's going to be some big offseason shakeups if the Penguins don't at least make the playoffs and maybe win a round this year. If they flame out early, they get swept again or something, or they miss the playoffs entirely, I think you're going to see some major changes um, in the Pittsburgh Penguins organization. Um, staying with the NHL, there was another huge story. Um, I don't know if everybody knows who Tony D'Angelo is. He's an, he's a young, uh, I think he's 25 years old, great defenseman. Um, he's like a 50, 60 point potential guy for the New York Rangers. Um, he's got a lot of baggage, so he's been on social media. Um, he's heavy into politics. Um, he's had some incidents over the years through junior hockey, uh, through when he was younger, up through even coming into the NHL. Uh, the Rangers are his third team, and he's a great great player, a great prospect, um, has huge potential on the ice. But um, over the years, he's had a little bit of um, some behavioral issues surrounding maybe some racial, um, racial slurs, things like that, where it's just very troublesome. Um, he's a toxic player. Uh, I'm not sure I would want him on my team. But you see in the league where these guys, they have these, they have this baggage, but they can produce. Um, most of his teammates I've read really love him, but the other night, um, and he was already on his second strike with the New York Rangers because of some of the, um, political stuff, the tweets, um, some things like that. He, He was just in hot water with the organization and they basically told him, Hey, if there's anything that comes into the news with you this year, you're done. As an organization, we're going to waive you. We're going to get rid of you. We're going to stick to our word and uh, our values as an organization. And the other night, last week, as I mentioned on the last episode, when Crosby scored an overtime against the New York Rangers, you could see on the ice a little bit that Tony D'Angelo threw his arms in the air, um, kind of showing up his goaltender a little bit. I mean, the goal was very soft. It shouldn't have been let in. It was like a 1980s goal where Crosby didn't even uh, get the puck off the ice. He kind of just snapped one five-hole from... Um, you know, just inside the blue line. So it was, it was a soft goal by today's goaltending standards, but that's never one thing. That's never something you want to do. You never want to show up your goaltender. Um, typically people in sports know when they've made a mistake, they know that, Oh shit, I should have had that puck or, Oh shit, I should have made that play. 
As a good teammate, you never call them out for it. But you could see on the ice that Tony D'Angelo kind of did that, and I guess they had some words. And in the locker room, or maybe even in the tunnel in PPG Paints Arena on the back to, on the way back to the locker room, there was a little scuffle uh, between Tony D'Angelo and Alexander Georgiev, the goaltender. And it's been reported that one of the other players kind of stood up for the goaltender and knocked out uh, Tony D'Angelo, and there was a big scuffle and everything. So ultimately, that got back to management. A horrible look for D'Angelo, bad look for the Rangers, but they put him on waivers, um, and he's been waived, and he wasn't picked up. And Jeff Gorton, the general manager for the New York Rangers, came out and basically said, hey, he's, he's played his last game in New York. We're working on trade partners. Um, it, so he, he did clear waivers. And, and for those who don't know, if you're on a one-way contract in the NHL, meaning you signed an NHL deal, you didn't sign a two-way. A two-way would be like you could play for the minor league affiliate or the NHL affiliate um, without having to clear waivers. That's what I'm saying here is like if you're on a one-way deal like Tony D'Angelo is and they want to get rid of you or they want to send you to the minors or in this case this year send you down to the taxi squad, the extra players that are there in case there's any COVID interruptions or anything like that so each team can field a roster, you have to clear waivers. So what that means is you go, if a team waves you, you go on what's called the waiver wire and each team, depending on the priority, I don't know exactly how it's determined, but it's determined by the league, which teams have priority for 24 hours. That player sits on that waiver wire and any team in the league can make a claim on it. So if, if the team say the penguins put a claim on somebody and the capitals put a claim on somebody and it comes out based on the league's calculation that the capitals actually have priority, they would get that player and then he would come off the uh, the other team that put him on waivers, and he would join the team that claimed him. So a lot of people were wondering, like, okay, so the Rangers are saying they're going to trade D'Angelo now, but nobody picked him up on waivers. So what makes them think they're going to get somebody to trade them an asset, but they could have had him for free if they picked him up on waivers? And that's a, a good question. But what will happen is, since every all the other teams know they'd be taking a chance on D'Angelo with all his baggage and his bad PR and I'm sure everybody on Twitter will be roasting any team that trades for him um, just because it's a bad look but they know that the Rangers are in a tough spot the Rangers are in a spot where they they've already said they've already come out and said he's played his last game as a Ranger so they're desperate they need to get rid of him they're going to take any asset so what another team will do is they'll say hey we'll give you a seventh round pick for Tony D'Angelo and you eat 50% of his salary so 50% of his salary will stay on the Rangers' books for the remaining of his contract, which is one more year after this. And then that way they'll be able to get a little bit cheaper of a player, a good player, if he's able to clean up his act and, and stay clean and stay out of trouble. Then you have a good player that's producing well, that might fit in great with your team and your teammates um, or in your players. And then you're getting him with 50% of your salary you're owing him. So it's a low-risk uh, buy for any team that might trade him because you you're might you just going to have to give up a late-round pick probably. Um, but if he turns his act around and, and he keeps producing on the ice, it might be worth it. But I'm not sure the, PR, the bad PR is worth it for any team. So we'll see how that plays out. And I know we talked a lot about Columbus over the past couple episodes. They were involved in that big trade that sent uh, Patrick Laine, uh, to Columbus with Jack Roslevic from Winnipeg and Pierre-Luc Dubois from Columbus over to Winnipeg. Big trade we talked about ad nauseum on previous episodes. Um, and I know we talked about it with my buddy Ray too, but John Tortorella, the head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets, is at it again. Four or five games already into Lion A's tenure as a Columbus Blue Jacket. He was put in the middle of the bench, riding pine for the last 26 minutes the other night. Absolutely hilarious. I don't think anybody could have said they didn't see this coming. Um, it was 
put out uh, this past week that the reason for that benching was that Patrick Laine mouthed off to one of the assistant coaches. Um, there was a couple instances on the ice where he looked like he wasn't given 100% effort. Um, even Cam Atkinson the, for the Columbus Blue Jackets came out and said, hey, you got to give 100% effort or Torts is going to bench you. So the Laine Torts marriage is already off to a rocky start. Um, staying in Columbus, Miko Koivu, um, he's been around for a long time, played most of his career in uh, Minnesota, one of the most respected guys in the league, called it quits in the middle of the season, just said, hey, I don't have the fire. I don't have the um, willingness to get up and go to the rink. I just don't want to play anymore. So, you know, it's pretty crazy what's going on over there in Columbus. They've had guys wanting out. They've had superstars coming in, getting benched. They've had um, respected guys and leaders saying, hey, I want to retire uh, so there's, there's been some speculation that maybe John Tortorella is going to, you know, just tell the organization, I want out of here. This isn't working for me. Um, so we got to keep our eyes on that. It's interesting over there in Columbus. Um, and two with the NHL, COVID is just running rampant. Um, I'm not sure it's, it's all cases of COVID. It's just a lot of the COVID protocol where guys are in contact with people that may have it or may have been um, exposed to it. Um, there's hasn't been any Canadian teams that have had a case yet, which is pretty crazy. Um, but Buffalo, Minnesota, New Jersey have been really, um, you know, riddled with COVID. New Jersey has 16 guys currently on the COVID protocol list. There's been games postponed left and right being rescheduled. Um, it's been an absolute gong show for the NHL so far. They had a hundred people in the first three weeks of the season, a hundred players, uh, be on the COVID protocol list for one reason or another. So, um, it's crazy too with the with the schedule because of all the uh, postponed games and the rescheduling. The St. Louis Blues will play the Arizona Coyotes seven straight times. So that's the first time ever in NHL history a team has played someone seven straight times. They're playing a nice little seven game series. Um, so that'll be interesting. Um, but just crazy how this whole schedule is going to work out. And I really hope they can get all the games in. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. A couple teams that are just still buzzing. Uh, Toronto, they're ten two and one. Uh, Montreal, eight two and two. Boston, eight one and two. Philadelphia, they're eight three and two. Tampa Bay, seven one and one. Uh, Carolina, seven and two. Vegas, they're seven one and one. Colorado, seven three and one. And St. Louis, seven four and one. So really, the usual suspects up there at the top of the standings. There's a couple other teams like the Capitals um, that are just right behind them. Um, but it, it's definitely packed up at the top of the standings in each division. Uh, going to be a tough, tight race uh, to the finish line here as long as the, the league can make it and as long as, as, long as teams can avoid uh, major issues with COVID and major stars being out. Um, one bright spot is how unbelievable Austin Matthews is playing in terms of scoring goals. This guy's scoring at an unbelievable pace. Uh, right now he's got eight straight games with a goal. He's got 11 goals this year already. He's leading the NHL. He's on pace for 51 goals in 55 games. Um, I'd love to see him win the Rocket Richard. I know there's a lot of guys out there that think Alexander Ovechkin's going to win it. Um, he's right there. I mean, he's got five goals in eight games. He's played less games. Um, but he's been buzzing after his COVID-19 absence where he violated the COVID-19 uh, protocols. So it should be an interesting race for the Rocket Richard, the most goals in the NHL this year between Matthews and Ovechkin. Um, I'd love to see Matthews get it. He's got um, 58 goals in his last 82 games, so 58 goals over the course of what would be a regular season in 82 games. 
uh, pretty crazy. And Ovechkin in that same time span has 55 goals in eight, his last 82 games. So those two guys are the cream of the crop in terms of scoring goals in the National Hockey League right now. And as far as points, as far as getting points in the NHL, nobody does it better than Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Those two guys are absolutely electric to watch, just so fun to watch. Connor McDavid's on pace for 112 points in 56 games, which under normal circumstances of an 82-game season, that'd be a 164-point pace. Leon Dreisaitl's on pace for 99 points uh, in 56 games, which would be, under normal circumstances of an 82-game season, 145 points. So pretty crazy this year. Uh, McDavid could get 112 points, Drysaddle could get 99 points, and they could somehow find a way to still miss the playoffs. Incredible. Uh, feel bad for those guys, but they're so fun to watch. Um, you know, you just got to tune in and see how great they are and how, how productive they are. Um, as far as McDavid, if it were a regular season of 82 games and he got 164 points, that would be the most points for any NHL player since 1988-1989 when Mario Lemieux had 199 points in 76 games. Um, just an absolutely absurd stat. What a time it would have been to be alive to witness that. Uh, the 80s, all the scoring, all the brawls, all the fighting. And, and speaking of fighting, Ice-T, the rapper turned actor, this uh, Law & Order SVU boss, one of the best rappers of all time, he put out a tweet this week that caused some uh, caused a stir and a little bit of conversation um, in regards to fighting in hockey. And he, he must have saw, I don't know if it came across his timeline or somebody tweeted it to him, but he saw a video of Wayne Simmons, the Toronto Maple Leaf, fighting somebody. I can't remember exactly who it was, uh, but basically he he tweeted at the video and he he posed the question as to somebody to explain to him why hockey allows fighting and not to use the excuse that it's tradition and it's always been that way. And I saw a lot of hate for hockey in the comments. Um, a lot of people saying the league's barbaric. They don't care about their players. The referees can't do their jobs. Um and I think mostly it's from people that don't quite understand the importance of fighting in hockey. If you disagree with me, that's fine. But I'll lay I'll lay it out for you um, as to why I think fighting is an important part of the game. Then you can decide and we can have conversations. That's fine. But first thing I want to say is technically fighting is not allowed in hockey. It is a violation of Rule 46. It's assessed a five-minute major penalty. As soon as you drop the gloves, doesn't matter if you throw a punch. It doesn't matter anything. As soon as you drop the gloves and initiate a fight, you're getting five-minute major. You're in the box. Um, and depending on the severity of the fight and the outcome of the fight, you could get a 10-minute misconduct, a game misconduct, or face supplementary discipline from the league in, in, uh, in a way of fines or suspensions or whatever the case may be. So I want to get that out of the way a little bit, that fighting is technically not allowed by the NHL. The, the referees do have a, a, a wide latitude of what they can um, – step in and stop or what they can allow on the ice. Uh, but the main idea and the way, the way the referees react to it is they allow the players to police the games, the game themselves, right? So you have to answer the bell. It's the code of hockey. If you make a cheap shot, you know, a dirty hit, a hit from behind, a slash, an elbow up high, anything like that, you've got to answer the bell. That's the code of hockey. Um, if you didn't have that, if you didn't have the ability to go out and fight and get retribution, uh, for your teammate or whatever the case is, you would have a very chippy, ugly game with lots of cheap shots, lots of players running around, lots of dirty plays to get back at players. I mean, you'd have guys that say like, hey, that guy nailed our captain, so I'm going to go dummy their captain right now, even though that guy had nothing to do with the play. That's the way it would work out. That's why fighting is important. I know people can say, well, you could eliminate that 
from the game. But in my opinion, you can't because there's 32 teams in the NHL, well, soon to be 32 teams in the NHL when Seattle joins in. And there's a lot of guys that are there. The only reason they have a job, they need these guys. They need these bodies to fill the, the positions on the teams. There's so many teams. You're going to have guys that know that's my role. I need to be physical. I need to be chippy. I need to get under the other uh, other team's skin. I need to fight. I need to stand up for my players. That's the way the game has always been. That's the way the game is going to remain to be. I think if you are if you have to stand up for um, yourself or you have to answer the bell, like I mentioned, you're less likely theoretically to run around and be a complete rat, be a complete asshole, because not, there's not a lot of guys that want to face the music. There's not a lot of guys that want to run around, throw elbows, and then have to fight somebody or fight some big goon and get their face pumped in. They There's not a lot of guys that are like that. So that's the idea. They want the players to police themselves. It's about respect. I know a couple years ago, Evgeny Malkin had a very high hit on Blake Wheeler, the captain of the Winnipeg Jets. Cheap hit, dirty hit, just uh, you know, not a typical play that Malkin would make, but you could tell he was frustrated. He knew it right away. He apologized after the game. The next time they went to Winnipeg, right off the draw, Wheeler was out there. Malkin was out there. What does Malkin do? He answers the bell. He sticks up. He abides the code of hockey. He drops his gloves. He fights Wheeler, and all is fine. You could see it. It's, it. Even after the fight, Wheeler was tapping him. Hey, buddy, thanks. No, no worries. No problem. Hey, I know it was, you know, unfortunate hit. You didn't mean to. Whatever the case is, everything's done. If that doesn't happen, if they can't fight, what did what did the Jets do in that game? They're running around. They're slashing Malkin. They're hacking him. They're hitting him high. They're taking runs at other players. That's the idea. People that maybe haven't played hockey, and I'm not saying it from experience either. I haven't played hockey at a high level at all. But that's the idea is that you let the players police themselves. Everybody usually knows if they made a cheap hit or they made a borderline hit that they shouldn't have done, and they're willing to answer the bell for it. That's the way the code of hockey has always worked. That's the way the code of hockey should always work, in my opinion. Another point, and I know this may, may not be the best point, but it's true, it's a fact, is the entertainment value of fighting. So what usually gets the biggest pop from the crowd in a hockey game outside of a goal? It's the fight. Anytime there's a fight, a casual fan, um, any fan really, the crowd's up, they're jumping, they're, they're, you know, the players are tapping their sticks, uh, the fans are clapping. That's just the way it is. And, and the NHL doesn't want to get rid of that. There is an entertainment value to the fighting. Um, I know there's been some instances where there's been guys like Derek Bugard and, you know, rest in peace to Derek Bugard, but there's been guys that have had major problems with um, addiction, painkillers, alcohol, things like that, based on the fact that they had to fight 30, 40 times a year just to make a living. But I think, I don't want to speak for those guys, but every video, every documentary, every book I've read about it, I'd say like 95% of those guys, if they had a chance to do it again, they would do it the exact same way. They had a chance to make the National Hockey League in a way that they would have never made it before. They made the show. They had to go. That was their role. They basically had to stick up for their teammates. They had to be tough. I mean, look at Paul Bissonnette. He's on Spit and Chicklets podcast. He would tell you the same thing. He's not the most skilled player, but he was able to play seven years in the NHL. Um, I think seven years, but at least he carved out a nice career, made some money, set himself up, uh, set his family up. You know, I think maybe some of the people um, had a good point where I would agree that maybe you get rid of some of the planned fights right off the draw, like that don't have any. Like I mentioned, Malkin and Wheeler, there was a there was history there, right? They were trying to settle the score and kind of get it past everybody and move on, right? Sometimes in recent years, and you don't see it as much, 
but you would have guys that were like, you know, two big fighters that would just square off for no reason right off the start of the start of the game. I could understand you get rid of that. I think you keep the spontaneous fights. The spontaneous fights are, I don't know how you would regulate between what's spontaneous versus what's planned, but you don't really see the planned fights as much anymore. But the spontaneous fights, I think, need to stay. I mean, you got pushing and shoving, you got cheap hits, all that stuff. It's going to continue to happen. And the cheap shots will only get worse if people don't have to answer the bell. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what anybody thinks about the referees or way the league can put new rules in. All that will be a detriment to the game. It won't be the same game. Not to mention, in 2018, the NHL Players Association, all the players in the league were polled, and 99.5% of the players said they do not want fighting to be banned from the league. So if the players want fighting, the Players Association's okay with it. That's the players' union. The league's okay with it. I don't see what the big deal is. I think it's a big part of the game. It's an important part of the game. Yes, people get hurt. Yes, there's head trauma. But the same people I see in the comments that um, are going against the NHL for head trauma and they don't care about head trauma and they're barbaric or whatever are the same people that watch UFC. And I don't want to compare it because I know it's different sports, but in UFC, I don't know if you've ever watched a UFC fight, but when they knock somebody down, what's the first thing they do? They jump on the guy and they pound him in the head seven, eight more times before the referee breaks it up. So why is that okay? But two guys that are on skates that are using their left hands to hold each other up is not okay. I, that's just my opinion. I would love people to um, reach out to me. I mean, if it, I just took exception to people saying hockey should eliminate fighting. Maybe I'm too old school. I think it would be a huge detriment to the game. And people argue about how the Olympics and um, how the World Juniors and stuff and the, the top-tier uh, players in those tournaments, there's no fighting in the Olympics. Yeah, because like I mentioned before, those are the top-tier athletes in their sport for their country. You don't have players filling spots on 31, 32 teams that the only way they're staying in the league is if they run around like that uh, and, and they cheap shot and they lay the body and all that stuff. That's that's just part of the NHL. And as long as you have that many teams and you have that many spots and you have guys that are fringe NHL players, but they're trying to make an impact, they're trying to stand up for teammates, you're always going to have that. In my opinion, you're always going to have the need for it. Um so, hey, after that rant, I got to take a sip of Coors Light. Hey, shout out to all the fighters in the NHL, though. Switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about uh, my movie review that I had. So, Iron Man 1. I mentioned last episode I was going to watch Iron Man 1, an absolutely unbelievable movie. I loved every second of it. Um, I know some people had reached out to me saying, hey, they're not big Marvel fans, or I had other people reaching out to me saying it's it's the best movie of all time. I actually went on and looked at some of the reviews before I watched it, and most of the re reviews are great on Iron Man 1 and say it's the best movie, best Marvel movie there ever was. Um, so, I, again, I haven't seen all the other Marvel movies, so I can't really tell you one way or the other, but I know I really enjoyed it. Um, no word of a lie, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um, Stark's a fucking boss. He's the man, like Robert Downey Jr. I don't, I don't really know actors that well, like what movies they're in and stuff. But I, I know he was exceptional in this movie. Um, it was, it was one of those movies that, because I, I said on my first episode when I talk about why I don't like certain movies that they're unrealistic and stuff like that or they could never happen. This movie, while it was a little bit far fetched, obviously because he's Iron Man and he flies and he, you know, he flies from here all the way to Afghanistan. He's got a suit that flies and stuff. That's a little bit unrealistic, obviously a little bit far-fetched, but it wasn't a complete insult to me like some movies are. 
like movies that could never happen, like the the Twilights or even Lord of the Rings and stuff. That stuff could never happen. So that like you have to completely suspend disbelief. And my brain and my imagination is not capable of doing that. But this case, I enjoyed it because most of the movie was realistic. The story was realistic. Um, you had the villain that was trying to sell. I mean, this could happen. You could have a company that makes weapons for the military that has a bad apple that potentially gets the weapons in the wrong hands or does it on purpose to be able to make money or whatever the case is that potentially could happen and (laughs) very well may have happened, um, in the United States history, (laughs) who knows, but, um, it wasn't an insulting story. Um, the one thing I was, I wanted to know was, and I know it's a movie, but I wanted to know was how the hell did he build that Iron Man suit? Like the first one to be able to get out of the terrorist cave where they wanted to, him to make the weapons, the, the replica weapons for them that they were trying to sell um, to the military. They wanted to make, they wanted him to make them for the rebels and the terrorists. How the hell was he able to build that suit in that cave and they didn't notice? I mean, they have to have the worst lookouts of all time. They had that cave uh, wired up with camera at every angle, but somehow they could see every day he wasn't making the actual weapon. He was making this big ass fucking uh, suit that he was going to use to get out of there. I didn't understand that. It was pretty crazy to me. But, um, again, the technical stuff on this is way over my head. All the things he's doing, um, like how to make this suit and all the different, like, formulas and all that stuff he's putting together. But it was still entertaining as hell. Uh, Pepper, his assistant, Rocket, uh, loved her. Um, She was awesome. And then uh, also the Vanity Fair girl that interviewed him at the beginning was Megan from The League, one of my favorite shows from The League. So she automatically got an A for her performance. Uh, but all in all, it was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. I'm definitely going to watch the next Iron Man. And uh, my buddy Seth, shout out to Seth, he reached out to me and told me uh, Disney Plus actually has the list um, of all the Marvel movies in order. So I'm going to go through and watch them all in order. Um, I stand corrected. I'm sorry to anybody that I offended when I said I didn't like the Marvel movies. I thought they were stupid. I would never watch them. I was wrong. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. My wife and I really loved it. Uh, we had a great time watching it. We're going to continue to watch them. So a hey, more power to everybody that loves the Marvel movies, and especially Iron Man 1 and Robert Downey Jr. What a boss. Um, pivoting back to the football a little bit, outside of the Super Bowl, not directly related to the Super Bowl, the NFL awards came out and the uh, Hall of Fame inductions were announced, as I mentioned. Um, a few of the NFL awards I thought um, were interesting were Aaron Rodgers was the most valuable player in the league. I don't think there was any doubt about that. He had 48 touchdowns, five interceptions. Um, absolutely unbelievable season. Uh, there's a lot of question marks with him to see if he stays in Green Bay. If he wants to go somewhere else, it'll be interesting. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think he's going to be competing with Tom Brady, so I'm not sure he can get through Tampa. We'll see. Um, but but Rodgers wins the MVP. And here in Pittsburgh, I know some people were very upset that T.J. Watt did not win Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, that award went to Aaron Donald, the inside interior lineman for the uh, L.A. Rams. Absolute beast. He's a generational talent, the best player in the league, in my opinion. Um, certainly the best defensive player in the league. Uh, T.J. Watt had a great year, exceptional year. Uh, but when you look at the stats, I mean, you can say T.J. Watt's stats were better in most categories, but you have to remember that T.J. Watt is an outside linebacker pass rusher. Okay, He rushes the passer on every play. He's going to get more sacks. He's going to get more tackles. He's going to get more pass deflections, things like that. Aaron Donald is an interior lineman. He's basically a nose guard. Like, For him to be able to get through the line like that and have the impact that he does, um, 
sacking the quarterback, disrupting the passes, uh, blowing up the run game. I think it's a no-brainer. I don't see how you don't give it to Aaron Donald. But, hey, no no knock on T.J. Watt. He had an outstanding year, uh, great year, um, bright future for the Steelers. Hopefully um, he can keep that going. And I, and I think he'll probably win a defensive player of the year before it's all said and done. But Aaron Donald, I have no problem with that. And the last one was uh, comeback player of the year, Alex Smith, the Washington football team quarterback. Great story. Um, he had that horrific injury last year where um, he had he got surgery and he had an infection. I don't know the whole complete story, but basically he almost lost his leg and potentially could have died um, as a result of this injury. Comes back, not only he comes back to play, but he comes back to start and plays pretty well for the Washington football team this year. So hats off to him. Sip a beer for Alex Smith. Unbelievable story there. Pulling for him to keep uh, keep pushing. Um, and some notable Hall of Fame inductions, as I mentioned, Calvin Johnson, Megatron goes in on the first ballot. Peyton Manning, no-brainer, uh, one of the top five quarterbacks of all time. Uh, Charles Woodson gets into the Hall of Fame. John Lynch, the stud safety uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and current general manager for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, John Lynch, man, what a player he was and, and what a player Charles Woodson was. I don't mean to gloss over him, but um, those guys were great. And then uh, the longtime Steeler lineman Alan Fanica finally gets into the Hall of Fame, and they're going to need a whole new wing uh, up in Canton for the Steelers. They have so many Hall of Famers, and they're going to have so many more to come, I think. Um, but great to see Alan Fanica finally get the call. He deserves it. And, um, you know, what a great class. That's just just a couple of the inductions um, I wanted to mention here. So congrats to those guys. And, and, and sticking with football, for any of my video game players out there, uh, my fellow video game boys uh, growing up, man, I loved NCAA football. That was one of my favorite games. It was the probably the best sports game um, there was. And me and my buddies used to play it all the time. It was great, and it went away because of the lawsuit from uh, f- the lawsuit for the guys that weren't they, they weren't paying the players. It, it had it's all wrapped up in that um, that lawsuit. So um, they've announced that in 2023, it appears that EA Sports College Football will be coming back. Now I haven't seen very many details on whether or not they are going to pay the players or how the players are going to be compensated or if they're going to do where like they have, you know, Ohio state or Clemson or Alabama and none of the guys are wearing the same numbers that they normally wear. Like if your quarterback's number 12 in real life, he'll be number 10 in the game. So they don't have the likeness. They don't look the same. They don't have the same stats, things like that. Um, I don't know how they're going to do it. That'll be interesting to find out. Uh, But it is cool because there's guys on the internet and the internet's a great place but there's guys on the internet that will take the time to build out every legitimate roster for every legitimate team in the game, and they will put that roster online, and you can buy it from them for whatever, $20, $30. They'll send you the file, you load it to your game, and then you'll be able to play with the actual players. Um, it's pretty cool. I just I can't wait for that game to come back. Um, it's been a long time coming, and I think they've really missed the boat. I mean, these players definitely deserve to be compensated um, that could be a discussion for a different day, obviously. I mean, the amount of money they're driving to their universities and for the universities to say, hey, you're getting a free education, okay, that's great, and that's 100%. I appreciate that, but you're also making billions of dollars and you're selling jerseys with my number on it that people wouldn't be buying if I wasn't wearing them and I'm not making a dime off it. And then before you were selling these video games where they had the likeness of the guy, the number, he looked like him, 
you know, there's no reason that these guys shouldn't be getting paid um, for that. I mean, the NCAA is ridiculous. You can't even go out and sign an autograph with your own name and sell it without it being an NCAA violation. So they've got a stranglehold on everything. That whole system needs to be blown up. It's ridiculous. Um, if, if somebody wants to buy a picture that I signed with my name, I should be able to make money off it. I'm the one that's going out there and playing. I'm the one that's going out there and producing and, and winning for my team. So it's ridiculous. So I hope these guys get what they deserve. And um, I'm looking forward to the game coming out. I know a lot of people are too. So, hey, more power to EA Sports College football. Let's go. Um, and the last thing I wanted to mention was um, this episode came out on Thursday. I know typically the episodes come out on Tuesdays. I apologize for any uh, inconvenience for anybody. Um, but I, I just wanted to make note that we have a programming update where the episodes are going to now be released on Thursdays. Um, it just makes it a little bit easier for us in the editing process. Um, so I, I appreciate your patience. If you guys could, please subscribe to the Rambling Brews podcast on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't listen to um, on all platforms, it would be greatly appreciated if you could do so. You could also subscribe, unsubscribe, then subscribe again multiple times. It really helps the numbers. Um, retweet some of my tweets at Rambling Brews. Follow at Rambling Brews on Twitter. Uh, it would go a long way. I really appreciate everybody listening. It still boggles my mind that so many people listen to this podcast and really care about what I think. And I get texts all the time saying, hey, when's the podcast dropping? Hey, are you talking about this? Uh, are you talking about that? Um, Etc. So I appreciate the hell out of everybody listening. And I hope your beers are staying ice cold while you're drinking them. I hope you have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next Thursday. And remember, if I don't see you around here, I'll see you around here. Be rich before we all stop breathing. Therefore, we kind of hustle lanes.
stay laying down our muscle game. Still turn niggas' dreams to flame. You got the wire? If not, I ain't saying no names. You soon expire. No pain. I feel remorseless. Of course, it's me and Diddy up first. Racing Porsches with the big twin valve exhausted. On the cover of your vibes. Double X cells and sauces, bitch. Since the notorious, see everything still glorious. We still got warriors, still be the victorious. See, it's a lot of them, but it's more of us. Still got cash to blow, raps to flow, still them cats to know, pack to flow, that's for sure. Bottles to pop, joints to rock, play the background, hand on my jock, holding my glock, money to get. Cars to flip, bars to sit at and sip cognac with juice to drip. Hoes to see, make sure they know it's me. Drop that D, can't believe that I am C. Bad boy to the casket drop. Gotta love it, place nothing above it. It's on like that. Don't believe we ain't going like that. For always gonna be here. We there, every motherfucker's here. We ain't going nowhere. We ain't going nowhere. We can't be stopped now. Stay right here we forever and ever. We can't be stopped now, cause it's bad boy We ain't going Go nowhere. nowhere. We gon' stay we right here. We ain't going nowhere. We can't be stopped now, cause we gon' stay right here for life. Yeah.